Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure uh, to welcome you to this second of three public lectures in the Charles E. Test, MD, Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars for the academic year 2003-2004. Uh, I'm Robert George, and I have the honor to be director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is uh, hosting this event. Uh, founded back in 2001, the Charles E. Test Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars brings to Princeton a scholar who exemplifies the highest possible standards of excellence in the humanities and social sciences to enrich understanding of the issues to which we have devoted ourselves. As you may recall, last year's Charles E. Test, MD, Distinguished Visiting Scholar, was John DiULio, the Frederick Fox Professor of Politics, Religion, and Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. He spoke on the topic of religion and public life. In 2001, the inaugural test seminars were delivered by Daniel Robinson, faculty fellow in philosophy at Oxford University, who spoke about the philosophy of the American founders. This year, we continue this distinguished tradition with Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese. Professor Fox Genovese is the Eleanor uh, Rao Professor of the Humanities and Professor of History at Emory University, where she is also the founding or was the founding director of the Institute for Women's Studies a celebrated author, historian, and scholar of women's issues. Her most recent publications include Women and the Future of the Family in 2000, Reconstructing History, The Emergence of a Historical Society, co-edited with Elizabeth Lash Quinn in 1999, Feminism is Not the Story of My Life, 1996, Feminism Without Illusions, A Critique of Individualism, 1991, and Within the Plantation, uh, within the Plantation Household, Black and White Women of the Old South, published in 1988. Professor Fox Genovese also gives herself generously to numerous scholarly associations, uh, including, I'm delighted to say, the James Madison program, where she chairs our uh, Council on Moral and Political Thought. Today, in the second of her three public lectures about the institution of marriage, her address is entitled Marriage 102, Different or Equal, the Compromise of separate spheres. Next Monday, on December the 8th, she will conclude this series, uh, same time, same place, with a lecture uh, entitled Marriage on Trial. It's a very great pleasure for me to welcome an esteemed colleague and dear friend and a groundbreaking scholar in the field of women's studies, Professor Elizabeth Fox Genovese. Thank you, Robbie, and thank you all. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, marriage has come under increasing fire, attacked especially from feminists, who depict it as the cradle and guarantor of women's oppression. Ironically, the form of marriage they attack is rarely traditional marriage, which they tend to relegate to outer darkness. Instead, they focus on the modern forms, which have contributed most directly to the growing respect for a woman as a person, and ultimately to the possibility of women's enjoying many of the same opportunities for independence as men. In other words, their target is only peripherally the world of patriarchal power and arranged or coerced marriages. Their real target is modern domestic marriage, with its attempt to bind marriage to love and to provide domestic happiness for women. 
The late Carolyn Heilbrunn captured the spirit of impatience when she wrote that marriage is the most persistent of myths imprisoning women and misleading those who write of women's lives. Critics of this persuasion have little interest in pre-modern forms of marriage beyond coded co condemnation of their patriarchal oppression of women. Patriarchal, and I put that in quotation marks, covers a multitude of sins and any historical epoch. It's widely abused, um, and which makes it easy to dismiss out of hand what are lumped as the bad old days. These critics see marriage as a license to abuse women and consider any view of marriage as sacrament or covenant, a self-serving deception on the part of those who seek to perpetuate women's inferiority to men. There are many problems with this picture, but for present purposes, the most important is the fatally flawed understanding of the changes in the nature and function of marriage from the 18th to the 20th centuries. Historians have fondly described these years as the source of companionate marriage, which has held steadily to have gained ground, probably since the middle of the 17th century even. Beginning as a small trickle, companionate marriage, or marriage for love, swelled to a flood by the middle of the 19th century, at least if we were to credit fiction, journals, advice books, and even sermons and religious discourses. Men and women were intended for mutual affection and companionship, which they should find in marriage, and if well-bred, find only there. True, the change occurred slowly and unevenly. Parents did not overnight lose the power to weigh heavily in young people's choice of appropriate partners. And even as their power to tell their children whom to marry began to wane, their power to tell them whom not to marry remained daunting, seconded as it was by the power of the purse. Love gained in respectability in relation to marriage, but if young people, especially those from good families, were encouraged to let love guide their cho choice of mate, it was understood that they would cho only choose from within a restricted circle. That is, for example, in a social circle that contained a pool of, say, 10 eligible young men, a young woman was free to choose the one she preferred. She was not free to choose beyond it. Even after monarchies crumbled under pressures for representative government and after the privileges of the nobility lost most of their legal standing and some of their social power, marriage remained central to a variety of social, economic, and even political alliances. The rise of the novel as a literary genre especially in Great Britain, charted these developments with, upset, with exceptional precision and clarity. It would appear that much of Heilbrunn's anger at the story of marriage derives from her familiarity with Brit British novels, 
which from the middle of the 18th century to the end of the 19th were disproportionately concerned with marriage. For feminist literary critics, men as well as women, this master plot, again quotations, as it has been called, without, I think, the pun intended, um, was primarily a way to enforce the subordination of women by teaching them that marriage, followed by domestic confinement and subservience, constituted the central purpose of their lives. Rachel Blau Duplessis expresses the sentiments of many when she writes, and I'm quoting, once upon a time, the end, the rightful end of women in novels was social, successful courtship, marriage, or judgmental of her sexual and social failure, death. Halbrin, Duplessis, and the many who share their views have a point, but they give the point the narrowest possible reading. 19th century marriage in much of the world did constrain women's freedom in a myriad of ways, but at least in Britain and the United States, it also guaranteed women new forms of dignity and independence. First, a word about intellectual and political context. The novel came of age during the two centuries that followed the English Revolution and it included the American, French, and Haitian revolutions. While men and women fought for political independence and the abolition of a variety of oppressive social arrangements, most notably in the Haitian case, slavery, a variety of political and social and economic theorists pondered the proper relations between man and society. Some of these intellectual reflections and debates focused on the problem of the individual, the freedom he, and more rarely she, should enjoy and the measure of equality that should prevail among individuals. Marriage did not escape scrutiny, especially since it was generally regarded as the cornerstone of society. And however inadvertently, some of the leading theorists explored new ideas about it. Writing during the English Revolution, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke in particular grasped that a valuable theory of sovereignty must begin with marriage. And although they disagreed almost on almost every other point, they did agree that in the state of nature, a man and a woman are equal. Hobbes and Locke were constructing theoretical models of the social contract rather than describing and analyzing the world around them, but both were trying to understand the implications of a change in the nature of sovereignty in political life for the po personal relations of the family. From different premises, they arrived at radically different conclusions. Hobbes, shuddering at the war of all against all implied by political individualism, favored an absolute sovereign to whom all individuals would be equally subject. Locke, who had a more optimistic view of human nature and a greater commitment to the protection of wealth, 
favored limited representation in which participation would be determined by the extent of an individual's property. It was sort of like owning shares in the kingdom. You got to vote them. Differences notwithstanding, both goals directly challenged the multi-layered hierarchical system of rights and privileges that had grown up over the centuries. Thus, not unlike the more radical revolutionaries who found it necessary to tear down before building anew, both Hobbes and Locke found it necessary to postulate a state of nature, in effect to wipe the slate of history clean in order to make a fresh start, imagine a new government. Here, the most important feature of their effort is the recognition that for all persons to be equally individuals, women must be equal to men, at least in theory. Today, we so take individualism for granted that we rarely think much about its origins, much less recognize its initial radicalism. Both Hobbes and Locke wrote in opposition to the patriarchal theory that joined religious and political authority in the claim that kings governed by divine right. Sir Robert Filmer, who wrote a treatise, Patriarcha, in response to Hobbes' secular justification of absolute authority, provided the most complete exposition of the assumptions that most people still took for granted. Patriarcha, which argued that kings descended directly from Adam and enjoyed their authority because of its divine origin, was not published until 1680, well after Filmer's death in 1653. In 1689, in the second treatise on government, Locke attacked Filmer's argument frontally, arguing that sovereignty did not emanate from God, but was inherent in the individual. Locke's argument transferred the locus of sovereignty and authoritative knowledge from God to man. But as Locke recognized, the transfer stripped away all justification for innate differences among individuals, including women and men, who in theory were now no more than interchangeable units of sovereignty and cognition. Not surprisingly, the theoretical recognition of the equality of the sexes faltered at the threshold of the real world, in which such equality palpably did not obtain and was not desired by many. Hobbes and Locke both found reasons for a woman to accede to the man's headship in marriage, thereby bringing their theories into line with prevailing practice. Neither could have foreseen that the individualism they ascribed to men would ultimately fail to provide a robust justification for allotting women a lesser status in the world. The justification for men's advantage over women lay not in political theory, but in nature and revealed religion, and, as Locke put it, in the laws and customs of the country, in other words, in history. The laws and customs of the country were slow to adjust, perhaps in part 
because marriage provided a welcome nesting place for fledgling and often anxious male individualism. Adam Smith even claimed that the true justification for a woman's fidelity to her husband does not concern the legitimacy of the children she bears him, but, and I'm quoting, that preference she owes him above all others. In other words, the woman is to provide a flattering mirror for the man's dawning sense of self as an individual. Um, They also adjusted slowly because marriage anchored and organized social, economic, and political life. Incentives to promote the equality of women and men were few, especially for men, although women benefited from a rising enthusiasm for their special roles within families, notably in the rearing of children, but also in providing what the late Christopher Lash recalling marks on religion, aptly termed a haven in a heartless world. But however great the increase in a sentimental appreciation of women, concomitant interest in expanding their economic and political roles did not keep pace. Like Hegel's Owl of Minerva flying at dusk, It was only during the 18th century that Blackstone produced the Magisterial Codification of English Law, Commentaries on the Laws of England, in which he wrote, I'm quoting, by marriage the husband and the wife are one person in law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during marriage or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of her husband, under whose wing, protection and cover, she performs everything and is therefore called, in our law French, a femme covert. Blackstone's views reflected the inherited wisdom of the common law, conserving rather than innovating. There is, nonetheless, a sense that the rise of individualism, at least in the short run of a century or two, placed new restrictions upon women's economic and political independence. For if a a medieval wife could, in case of need, replace her husband as the delegate of the family or household, a 19th century wife could not replace her husband at the pole. She couldn't represent her family in the public realm. It is as if the rapid increases in commercial activity, economic production, and social mobility added renewed importance to the stability of marriage, grounded in the subordination of wives to husbands. Jane Austen, writing during the Napoleonic Wars and on the cusp of the emerging 19th century world of individualism, had an acute eye for the niceties and wrote of them with brilliant precision. Each of her six major novels features a bright and talented heroine, and each ends with that heroine's marriage to the appropriate man. Beyond that fundamental similarity, The novels trace the social trajectory of marriage 
over the span of almost two decades. She began writing them in the late 1790s, and they were, I'll give you dates, but they were all published after 18, between 1810 and 1820. Um, in Pride and Prejudice, which was published in 1813, Elizabeth Bennett, the second daughter of a minor country gentleman, who through a quirk of inheritance laws will not even be able to draw on his very modest wealth to provide adequate dowries for his five daughters, disdains aristocratic pretension. Yet after appropriate twists and turns of the plot, she eventually marries the haughty aristocrat Fitzwilliam Lord Darcy. Through Darcy and Elizabeth, Austen intends to reveal redeeming virtues in the aristocracy and to present a truly appropriate marriage as a way of revitalizing it. Darcy and Elizabeth marry for love, but their marriage represents what Austen views as important social considerations, including the need for some modest reform, both in the effect of inheritance law, and especially the law of entail on women, um, and in the behavior of the less responsible elements of the aristocracy. Mansfield Park and Emma, which followed Pride and Prejudice in quick succession, also explore the ties between marriage and social and economic change. So meticulous is Austen's dissection of social patterns that the British anthropologist Meyer Fortas used Mansfield Park to illustrate important features of marriage and kinship from an anthropological point of view. Mansfield Park's many lessons include a painful example of what happens to a young woman who marries for love with no consideration for the counsel of her family and friends. In other words, who marries outside that magic circle of 10. The mother of Fanny Price, the novel's heroine, had married a seaman who could never provide adequately for their numerous children. And there's a vague suggestion that um, love produced this unseemly number of children. It's all sort of out of control. Fanny, her daughter, is endowed with many fine qualities, but only after a protracted stay with her mother's wealthy kinfolk at Mansfield Park does she acquire the education and refinement that ultimately win her the heart of the man she loves. The happy conclusion demands that he also undergo a serious chastening, primarily by freeing himself from the seductions of a pretentious pseudo-aristocratic woman and settling upon his true vocation as a clergyman. Here again, marriage is used to signify a mastery of the worst tendencies of the aristocracy. Austin's explorations of these themes culminates in Persuasion, which was published in 1917, her last major novel. Decidedly more somber than the others, Persuasion launches the sharpest of Austin's attacks on the aristocracy. Whereas previously she had focused upon aristocratic excesses, abuses, and pretensions, here she raises the possibility that the aristocracy has become so decadent 
and above all so fatuous and frivolous as to have forfeited the justification for its privileges. Anne Elliot, the motherless protagonist, had in her youth allowed her godmother, Lady Russell, to persuade her not to marry the man she loved. Captain Wentworth, that man, was a Navy man and lacked sufficient fortune to provide properly for the aristocratic Miss Elliot. Several years later, he returns to England, and he and Anne find themselves in the same social circle, neighborhood. During the interim, Anne's father, Sir Walter Elliot, has proven himself so financially irresponsible as to be forced to rent out the family estate and move himself into rental quarters. Admiral and Mrs. Croft, the couple who rent his estate, are Navy people and friends of Captain Wentworth. The novel concludes with Anne's eager acceptance of Wentworth's second proposal of marriage. The years between Anne's refusal and acceptance of Wentworth have tested her in many ways. At the novel's opening and well into it, she hovers on the verge of depression, and even as her world begins to brighten, she remains more subdued than Austen's other heroines. Her years of emotional isolation are sobering, primarily in teaching her that mistakes in judgment and undue attention to false values could have permanently cost her her happiness. Anne's case thus represents a refinement in Austen's treatment of love. Perhaps more significant, persuasion offers a significant modification in Austen's social views. Her early novels all betray her deep disdain for mere tradesmen and her continuing quest to redeem the aristocracy and the country gentry as the foundation for healthy social values. It's very definitely the country against the city. By the time she wrote Persuasion, she had significantly rethought her position. Although we have no justification for seeing Austin's Navy people as proxies for the bourgeoisie, she leaves no doubt that they do represent new money and new careers open to talent. Wentworth is well-born, although not wealthy, the main reason for Lady Russell's objection to him as a suitor for Anne initially. But the Crofts are of middling origin, and Admiral Croft, like Wentworth, has made his career and his fortune by his own efforts and talents. And there's a delightful twist in the novel because he and his wife are childless, and he actually takes his wife to see with him. And they're very giddy in their description of their pleasures of those adventures. And it's a, it's a rare look at what real companionate marriage could look like. Anne's marriage to Wentworth symbolically legitimates this new upwardly mobile class, even as it undercuts the aristocracy's pretensions to a preeminence its behavior no longer merits. In Persuasion, Austin also explores the claims of love upon marriage, 
especially in the choice of partners. Should the motherless 19-year-old Anne Elliott have defied the advice of her godmother, Lady Russell, and impetuously married the young Captain Wentworth? Since Anne and Wentworth do ultimately marry, it is tempting to fault Lady Russell for jeopardizing Anne's happiness and to fault Anne herself, as Wentworth initially seems to, for the failure to trust her own instinct. This verdict may not be Austen. Throughout her major novels, she treats marriage for love with great caution, advancing good examples and bad. Her pages teem with impetuous, light-headed young women who blindly follow the first glittering uniform that crosses their path. The results range from humdrum to disaster. At the same time, each of her heroines does marry for love. Presumably, the difference lies between an immature obsession and a love duly considered. But the line is always hard to draw. In this respect, as in so many others, Austen ushers in a new era of ambiguity. The revolutionary age that extended from 1776 to 1815 marked a major historical watershed, leaving few aspects of life untouched. One may plausibly argue that the emergence of companionate marriage occurred over a long period and should not itself be seen as a revolution. But the revolutionary decades coincided with the emergence of romanticism in the arts, especially literature, and with a new conception of companionate marriage and domesticity. Together, these tendencies seem to reconcile the force of love and the institution of marriage, which the Middle Ages had seen as incompatible. The questions nonetheless remained. Could marriage domesticate the unruly force of truly passionate love? And could passionate love survive the daily demands of marriage? Romantic artists bitterly protested the constraints of bourgeois respectability, which in their view stifled human creativity as well as passionate love. French writers of the early 19th century, notably Henri de Stendhal and Gustave Flaubert, created heroes who invariably found an unattainable married woman infinitely more attractive than the appropriate marriageable young lady that bourgeois society prescribed for them. British writers doggedly continued to wrestle with what is known as the marriage plot, usually treating it as the only plot. Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope stand out as leaders in this regard, but George Eliot wrestled with the same questions as they. In the minds of these writers and those who shared their concerns, marriage held the key to a worthy social order. In this respect, they were as likely as the writers of the courtly love tradition to see passionate love as disruptive and inimicable to domestic and social peace. Gradually, Victorian culture disciplined romanticism, curtailing the open expression of passion, especially sexual passion. Probably never as puritanical as often depicted, Victorian culture privileged a chaste domesticity 
over wild demonstrations of passion, figuratively representing the home as a sphere apart. Victorian culture drew an imaginary line between it and the world. Scholars have correctly protested that the boundary between the separate spheres of home and work was never as sharp as the rigid models suggest, and more often than not, was positively fluid. Representations, whether in literature or in political theory or the law, never perfectly capture the messy ebb and flow of everyday life. It would nonetheless be rash entirely to discount the notion of separate spheres, if only because so many people of the time subscribed to it. In theory, separate spheres ascribe the home to the woman and the outside world to the man, thereby associating women with love, mutuality, morality, and nurture, and associating the man with power, work, and competition. Thus, marriage in joining the man and the woman joined the two sides of human experience, which, by complementing one another, together made up a whole. Today's feminists have vehemently protested this arrangement as inherently oppressive, nothing more than another campaign to subordinate women to men. They are not wrong about women's subordination to men in the world, but they may miss the many ways in which companionate marriage and domesticity benefited women, especially those of the middle class. Responsibility for domestic life offered women a kind of apprenticeship in individualism, even as it alerted them to the ways in which they were being shortchanged. If things went well, a marriage grounded in love and companionship brought them warm relations with their husband, and in theory, protection from the unsolicited attentions of other men. And a new self-consciousness about the importance of motherhood brought them a large role in shaping their children's minds and characters. But none of these advantages brought them the equality with men that individualism might seem to have promised and that feminists now claim as an absolute right. The criticisms of companionate marriage in separate spheres are usually launched from the perspective of the individual. The age of revolution introduced an emphasis upon the sanctity of freedom that gradually spread from the political into the personal realm and with it spread an ever-expanding current of anti-authoritarianism. The authority of a husband over his wife provided an easy target, especially when it was widely known that many husbands abused their authority in countless ways. By the middle of the 19th century, campaigns were underway to permit married women to control their own property, to, to, to liberalize divorce, and to grant mothers custody of children in, should divorce occur. Other campaigns focused upon women's access to higher education and the right to vote. Still others sought general social reform, notably temperance, as a check on men's perceived brutality. To take, we take the legitimacy of these goals for granted, 
that in time and place many were contested, often on the grounds of the physical difference between women and men. At first slowly, and then at an accelerating pace, most were attained, except, of course, temperance. If we switch from the perspective of the individual to that of the society, the, the picture looks somewhat different. In most respects, companionate marriage and domesticity diminished men's power over women and loosened the bonds of marriage. The sexual division of labor by spheres had the further consequence of figuratively divorcing morality from power. So long as the marriage held firm, female morality and male power could act in concert, reinforcing one another. Any weakening of the marriage invited an increase in public and private irresponsibility. Power could rule public affairs, unchecked by moral considerations, while morality could preside over the home, devoid of the power to enforce its own dictates, and therefore to be taken seriously. And stripped of the protection, so-called, of marriage, women faced a dangerous world with inadequate resources. The problems become clear when we consider that the same developments that fostered the spread of companionate marriage wreaked havoc on the marital opportunities of various groups of poorer women. The rise of industrial capitalism, another great revolution of this revolutionary age, pulled countless working people from farm households into factory labor in cities. With harsh working conditions and minimal pay, life was often as nasty, brutish, and short as anything Hobbes had imagined, and marriages became difficult to sustain. This was a world in which working people had life expectancies of maybe 30 years, ate out because they had neither the strength nor the funds to eat at home, and consumed vast amounts of gin because it was cheaper than food and provided the calories to keep them warm and working. In England, it was common for entire families to work in the mills and factories since parents could not earn enough to support their children and no one could even imagine a man's earning enough for his wife to stay home and care for them. The wonder is that under dire conditions, so many seem to have clung to marriage as the bond that testified to and sanctified their humanity. On the other side of the Atlantic, the slaves in the American South were deprived of the legal right to marriage. Many did marry in a variety of ceremonies, but their vows, even when professed in front of a preacher, had no standing at law. Once married, even when they lived on the same plantation, which many slave couples did not, um, they lived under a constant threat of separation through the sale of one or the other, and the even likelier threat that one or more of their children would be sold away. And of course, they did not have the right to hold property, and certainly not the right to shape their own children's future. Much has been written about slave marriage and its absence, and feminist scholars have even suggested that slave women enjoyed greater autonomy 
than white slaveholding women because they lived free of the domination of a husband. We may be permitted to doubt that slave women saw it that way. For if they escaped the purported domination of the husband, they surely did not escape the domination of the master who owned them. Overwhelming evidence suggests that slaves deeply regretted their inability to enter into binding marriages, and with emancipation, most of them married at once, many of them claiming, brothers, sisters, we must marry. Marriage is the foundation of all our rights. The slaves' response to their experience confirms one element in Orlando Patterson's exaggerated claim that to be enslaved is to suffer what he calls social death. The slaves of the southern United States enjoyed many human connections from which they built a vital slave community and Afro-American culture. Um, it's hard to describe that, their life as a collectivity as social death. But the lack of marriage did subject them to a kind of social death because it severed the connection between their personal unions and society as a whole. Coming from tribal societies in Africa, they retained a strong sense of the importance of the social bond and understood all too well the dangers of trying to build a social order on the vagaries of individual choice. Companionate marriage and domesticity, notwithstanding their shortfallings, did attempt to ground a viable social order in the willing acquiescence of individuals to authority, what when Freud appeared on the scene would be called internalization. The balance was fragile at best. The economic pulls were unambiguously centrifugal and would become more so. The lure of gratification of individual desire would prove almost irresistible. And the feminist insistence that women must enjoy the same rights and opportunities as men would fuel an uncompromising attack on authority, natural, human, and divine. To understand my remarks as an attack on feminism would miss the point. In many societies, marriage has subjected women to brutal and unjustifiable domination by men. More often than not, men had the right to beat, abandon, or dismiss wives who failed to produce heirs or to meet other of men's expectations. Even in the absence of brutality, men have controlled their wives' persons and resources while the wives have had little or no recourse. The history of marriage has not been a story of sexual equality, and most of the inequalities call out for redress. The injustice of the inequalities does not justify our forgetting that the history of marriage has never been preeminently been a history of individual rights for the man or for the woman. The history of marriage has been one of binding differences into a common purpose in full recognition that the responsibilities of the two sexes will vary with historical circumstance. From a feminist perspective, the strength of marriage has always varied in inverse proportion to the independence of women, usually to women's disadvantage. 
The companionate marriage that prevailed from 1750 to 1950 offered women unprecedented advantages together with some galling disadvantages. The freedom to marry for love did not necessarily include the subsequent freedom to develop one's individual talents, much less to live according to one's fancy. Edna Pontellier of Kate Chopin's The Awakening offers the perfect case in point. Feeling thwarted by her husband and children, whom she loves, she forsakes them in quest of personal and sexual independence. That her quest ends with her swimming to her death in the embrace of the waters of the Gulf Coast only underscores the persisting incompatibility between companionate marriage on the one hand and obsessive love or radical individualism on the other. Together with men, women ascended to the abstract status of the individual. But unlike men, they had scant opportunity to enjoy its public prerogatives. And the more they challenged men's authority within marriage, the more they eventually turned to the potentially more draconian authority of the state. Marriage has ever been an attempt, as it were, to square the circle, to combine personal and public purposes to the advantage of both. The results have always been imperfect. Christians have long experience with the challenge of equal but different. Equally valuable and cherished in the eyes of God, men and women are enjoined to fulfill very different roles in the world. Christians have not solved the problem of equal but different, but secular theorists and activists who are increasingly liberated from any limitations on the freedom and rights of the individual, have done much worse. And everyone excuse me. And to have everyone the same is no answer. Okay, uh, the floor is open for questions, and our Custom in the Madison program is to begin by having a period of uh, questions from the students. So the floor is open for the students, and then we'll, we'll open it more, more broadly later. Do any students have questions? Really? No <laughs> students have questions? Okay, there's a student with a question. Great. Uh, in the present day, the view of companion of marriage in some ways continues as romance is the center of peace of marriage. Do you have any suggestions for how that might be well-directed um, for people? Um, I'm thinking about uh, a process of courtship or greater involvement from the family in the dating process to give some direction so that even as people previously were concerned that this wild love wouldn't take marriage all over the place. Do you have any suggestions for how we could um, structure marriage or, or dating or courtship if romance is to be the centerpiece? Well, I think you're wonderful even to raise the question of dating and courtship because that's the right starting point, yes? Um, the, the literature says that we've had a radical decline in dating and courtship. And um, the marriage 
should be, ideally is a combination of love and companionship. And it requires that um, people learn give and take and how to support one another. You also put your finger on another point that has seriously concerned me over the, over the recent years as I've thought about these problems, namely that parents have, by and large, lost the ability to introduce their children to appropriate marriage partners. You know, they go off to college, the parents move around, they work, they work for big corporations, it's, um, except where you have close networks in churches, immigrant communities are more successful. I have a Romanian graduate student who's just married, another Romanian lovely young woman. It's wonderful. Um, you know, these, these things work very well. I have been amazed that it would seem, at least for older people, I'm not sure for, for the people just starting out in college, but for older people, that some of the more structured internet services are actually beginning to provide some of the function that families and social networks once provided, that, that people are getting to know something about one another and having some sense of the other as a human being, and some of the mystery of courtship, it's not the same as living in a co-ed dorm, and, you know, all the, there's precious little mystery in that kind of situation, or, or romance, or, um, Deferred gratification, and all of those go into that, that initial sense of romance and of the other person as just wonderfully desirable in, in the full sense, not that sort of hardcore Foucauldian desire, but just how miraculous that there be such a person in the world, right? Well, there's the Daily Princetonian story for tomorrow, Fox Generation <laughs> versus Internet Dating. <laughs> right. Other student questions? Well, if the, if the students are... Uh, this count, graduate students count. Okay, if, the, if, the, if the students uh, wish to exercise their Fifth Amendment right to remain silent, we'll open the floor more generally. So, uh, yes, uh, Anna Casada. Um, you mentioned that the feminist movement rebelled against the Victorian separation of the two spheres, the work sphere and the home sphere. But we know that the feminist movement has itself been responsible for pushing along the separation of the private and the public. They're trying to. So I was wondering if you could reflect upon the differences between the feminist version of the two spheres, or the modern version, and the more Victorian, just to help us understand. Well, I, it's a good question, and I will try but I find the writing on this topic, and I follow it pretty closely. Um, well, uh, and then there was light. <laughs> I find it... Um, genuinely 
inconsistent. In other words, I, I find it very difficult to, to see a clear theory emerging because there's a passionate denial of difference. And it's a hardcore feminist writing. If you go to someone like Judith Butler, not so much policy people, or that Joan Scott, the, that whole group, um, will deny that, that there's any sexual difference at all except in the mind's eye as, as we create it. That's what I mean, there is the revolt against natural authority of any kind. Um, and once you get to that point, uh, it's very difficult to have separate spheres if you don't have a clear distinction between women and men. Now, obviously, you do have a clear distinction against women and men because a lot of the people who push such theories also regard men as the enemy and as brutalizing women, and the whole premise of feminism is that it is a revolt against men. In other words, you're looking at a great deal, I think, of, how to put it charitably, um, as yet un unfinished theory that I don't, I don't think we have much clarity on that point. And I think the, the most dangerous part of it is the tendency to turn the care for children into servants' work. The care for children into servants' work, that the, the, the private sphere, the staying home with children, the, the, the kind of female roles. Um, and as I will say in the next lecture, I am not focusing primarily on the importance of children in this picture, although it is overwhelming, because I think in our concern for children, which cannot be too great, we have lost concern for the prior importance of marriage. Okay? It, now, now, students are still eligible to get it. They just have to compete with everybody else. Yes, ma'am, you, you're welcome to come in. Um, is it possible, do you think, that unfortunately women cannot have it all? For example, a lot of my European female friends have chosen not to have families, but careers. That's why a lot of them, it's a, uh, they might be married, but they don't have children because they feel they can't do both. I have a feeling that a lot of American women feel that they can do with everything, and they're not doing anything well in a lot of cases. And um, this is very, very rarely spoken of. I think you're absolutely correct. Um, I have said before, and I'll say again, we cannot have it all, at least not all at once. You know, life is long, and... Um, it is possible to, and because there are advantages to modern technology, uh, there are good things on the internet as well as scads of bad things. Telecommuting is a possibility. Um, Part-time work should be more readily available. There are all kinds of policy <coughs> considerations, but basically children have a right 
to be the most important thing in the world to someone. And that's the only non-negotiable right that, that I recognize. Um, it, it's also, we have very little, and it's certainly true in my church and in our culture at large, um, very little positive discussion about the importance of the contributions that single women can make. So much of it is, on the fo is focused on money and what's called an upscale lifestyle and freedom from all responsibilities. Dear Lord, we're getting on television now ads for childless people for their pets um, that are referring to them, the, the adults, single or married, as mommy and daddy, and then this huge collection of presents for pets. Well, you know, I've always had animals and I love them dearly, but there's something very wrong with this picture, and I think we don't have enough of a sense of choosing a single life for a woman as a form of dedication or service to society, to a particular work, to other people. History is full of women who did not marry and who were available primarily in, in earlier times to care for elderly parents, um, to take over if a sister dies, to take on her children, um, to teach school, to do all kinds of things desperately needed in the community. They, they take a different form today, uh, but they're portrayed as flight from responsibility. All those TV comedies, none of which I've ever seen, but I have a feeling they're all about whatever, friends and that whole string of things, um, are about how you run away from adult responsibilities in one way or another. And I think that if you choose to be married, you take on responsibilities that differ from those for single women. Yes, I don't know whether you're a student or not, but you're very well. <laughs> when you spoke about companionship marriage as, as separate spheres, um, you said that through history often that was uh, exploited somewhat and that the women were powerless. And it wasn't clear to um, how you felt a modern companionship marriage was that still, is that a built in flaw of the separate <laughs> Or that was historically often the case and we are now getting rid of that and being able to take the positive <coughs> Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very much afraid I'm rather more, you got me right, you, you're, you, you've got a good sense of the problem. I'm a little more pessimistic than that, um, which is why what I will ultimately argue I see marriage as a very important form of existence, that it's ironic that the culture at large sees the defense of same-sex marriage and liberation from this, that, and the next thing as the great gestures of resistance. And I see the defense of marriage as the true resistance against the, the forces that are in effect engulfing us. I, very simply, I think the divorce of morality and power 
in the 19th century and carrying into the 20th was a serious cultural disaster. It, it really was. that, um, And it comes back again and again in some of the church-state debates and the legal cases that are, are being discussed. And because we have so, we, the elite, whatever, have so clearly made up our minds that morality is a personal matter and must not be allowed to intrude into public affairs and none of us can impose our views upon anyone else, we have absolutely abdicated the notion that power should be in some sense informed and governed by moral considerations because that's to be judgmental and impose yourself on someone else. Now, lots of people do it in the name of political correctness, but if it were to take the form of religion or Ten Commandments, to take an item that's been in the news recently, or simply a sense of drawing limits, we don't do it. And with this split, um, Increasingly, the world has intruded into the home through television, through consumerism, through internet porn to which apparently quite young boys become literally addicted. Um, the ways in which the world gets uh, a handle, uh, its, its grip into young people is a little bit disconcerting so that by having divorced morality and power, it seems to me the, the challenge that faces us is how we reunite them in some politically and morally acceptable way in what is a diverse world. You know, I'm not saying we impose our views on everyone else, but I think the flight from the legitimacy of having world views has been a total disaster. Uh, yes. Uh -huh. um, given the history of the abuses in, in trying to differentiate between the genders and articulating particular roles, um, how would you suggest that we begin to um, approach articulating what those differences are? Um, I want to leave it broad because I'm wondering, is this a sociological endeavor? Is this a multidisciplinary endeavor where you have people from theology, uh, from sociology, from even economics, of coming together to try to articulate some of these differences? Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful question and a, and a challenging problem. I always start with um, what is, Lord knows modern science is increasingly challenged, but I, challenging, but I think it's sort of the, the baseline of our humanity, um, women bear children and men don't. The sexual difference and the complementarity of men's and women's fathers. Um, as the world changes, the significance of those differences changes. There are lots of things that I can do today that my foremothers couldn't do um, 
because physical strength mattered more than it matters today. And because they bore more children and because they um, had more complex households to run. And we, we focused so much on what women, all the interesting kinds of work women were kept out of. But the vast majority of the world's men were kept out of all forms of interesting work. Most, most people worked most of their lives to hold families together, to rear children, and to reproduce you know, that vote of confidence in, in themselves as part of a, a people, a group. Um, I don't think there are very many things that men can do that women can't do. I, I, in a world of equal competition, really fair competition, I don't expect to see a lot of women on professional football teams in the near future. No, I don't. Um, and I hate to admit it, but all things being equal, if I were caught in a burning building, I'd probably rather have a 200-pound male than a 120-pound female responsible for getting me out. Um, you know, I, I'm serious. That can be a very selfish, how can I deprive that woman of that opportunity? She should be able to be a firefighter as well. Well, I just, women can't serve in the infantry in the same way as men do. There, you know, there are a variety of things. How couples choose to divide who cares for children seems to me should always be a private decision, although there is overwhelming evidence that pregnancy is a tremendously important experience for women. And breastfeeding is good for babies but that um, following a pregnancy, after birth, we know it's, it's a shock for the child to face the world, having been safe in the womb. What people don't recognize is that it's a shock for the mother to be two people instead of one, and that she too needs time to readjust to her relation with the baby she's been carrying. And I pretty strongly believe that if you can protect one, two, preferably three years for a mother with new children, that's a good thing. And thereafter, it's really up to the parents to decide who does it. Fathers do a wonderful job with kids, but it's a balance of how much money you feel the family needs, whether you're going to homeschool, who prefers, who can work from home, who needs to work in the public sphere. I mean, myriad things go into the kind of decisions that couples make. And to me, that's, that's what legitimate freedom is, that they make those choices for themselves. Yes, Professor Sheehan. I'd like to ask you if you would to expand a little bit more on your analysis of the relationship of, of historical changes, particularly in regard to economics and social mobility, and the effect of that on both individual human beings and their relationships with others, particularly marriage. Let me put that in a little bit of context in terms of what I think I heard you argue. Uh, when you talked about um, Jane Austen changing her views uh, by the time she gets to persuasion so that um, she no longer disdains tradespersons, 
and uh, only wants to and wants to defend and redeem the aristocracy. Um, my read of that is, is slightly different. I see, for example, in Pride and Prejudice, as early as that, that um, besides Elizabeth and Darcy, um, if there could be a secondary, as it were, uh, middle-aged heroine and, and, and hero, it would probably be the Gardeners, whom uh, Elizabeth's yeah. aunt and uncle, whom yeah. Elizabeth loves and respects, and whom Darcy ultimately comes to love and respect and invite <coughs> them into his home. And they're, of course, tradespeople in London. Uh, whereas Lady Catherine de Bourgh, the aristocrat, is certainly in no way praised or redeemed at all. But so I think that that's there as early as some of her earlier writings. But I think it's not just the question of um, tradespeople versus aristocrats, but but rather the mercenary, because the changing face of England economically then in terms of social mobility. Um, you've, got, you've got people like the Gardeners who are good, decent folk. But you've got the mercenaries in this changing situation, like the Wickham, who know nothing but money, like the Lucy Steeles in, in Sense and Sensibility. And on the other hand, you've got decent aristocrats, respectable aristocrats like Darcy, ultimately, um, versus the Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who's just as shallow as um, her counterpart Wickham. So I see it as the more of a, of, a, of a question of not just what democracy, economic changes, and social mobility are doing to individual human beings and their ability to have um, good, solid relationships and marriages, but more a question of how one deals with those changing economic circumstances. Um, on the other hand, you implied that capitalism, or I thought you did, particularly industrial capitalism, has had a very negative effect on relationships between people, particularly in marriage. Um, did I understand you correctly, or um, would you argue differently? In other words, is there a relationship between capitalism and marriage that's problematic? And if so, would you talk about that a little bit more? All right. Well, you've put a lot on the table, and you didn't get it all right. So I, I, I certainly am not saying that the Navy people are tradespeople. There are tradespeople throughout Austin who are good people. There is also the mercenary. She's very conscious of class, and I would I would argue that that although the gardeners are very good people, and that Emma Woodhouse's former governess who marries someone in the city, they're very good people. Um, all the rest of it, it's there's no question that she sees some flexibility. That the the center of her concern always focuses on who marries whom. That the marriage plot is the resolution, and that carries through one novelist after another. And then the secondary figures are the landscape. What makes the Navy people so interesting is that they're not tradespeople, but they are embracing a new way of life that might point a future for a renewal of the aristocracy and the country gentry. There's some way for them to adapt to the world that is changing around them. Um, and, and I easily might not have been entirely clear on that point, but I 
don't think I call the Navy people tradespeople oh, at no, any I point. I didn't mean to imply that. It's, or say uh, that. Um, as for the role of capitalism, um, it's completely ambiguous. On the whole, it has had positive advantages for women, and it has had terrible disadvantages for women. Any social system, socioeconomic system, relations of production, as Marx would have called them, um, is as good as we make it. Uh, the, the problem with capitalism and industrial capitalism was an ability to intrude into the interstices of households, that the mobility of goods, um, the, the possibilities of buying, the speed with which life moves, um, break down the walls of, the integrity and walls of households, and let the world in. Uh, some of that can be extremely beneficial. Um, some of it can be really destructive. And it depends a great deal on, on how we manage it. So that um, I, I can never bring myself to say there is no moral progress because I think we've seen moral progress in the abolition of slavery, um, although there's still slavery in the world. Um, and I think we've seen moral progress in the improved position of women in many parts of the world. They've been accompanied by forms of warfare that our 19th century ancestors would have regarded as nothing short of barbarism. I mean, we've regressed to, we've fallen off from standards of humanity in countless areas in ways that I think should scare all of us. Our callous attitude towards life is going to come back to haunt us, I'm sure of it. Um, so it's it's what we do with it, right? It's, it's not that in and of itself, it's good or bad. Trains make it, we can now feed the entire world, which would not have been possible in the 18th century. Famine was not a moral question because you couldn't move the grain, okay? Today, famine is a moral question. And it's how we handle it. Just, just for my information, <coughs> Lady Catherine de Bourgh didn't turn out to be shallow, though, right? She was just... <laughs> she was just... Yeah, I didn't miss it. No, you didn't miss it. I just like you're going to try to You're saying she's shrewd and well-intentioned? In the end, right? In the end. She's redeemed. Oh, no, I don't think so at all. No? She's a pompous, imperious... She just was presented that way in the beginning. Then at the end... All right, we're going to have to have... Yeah, I would like to get your opinion on women serving in the armed forces, particularly under Obama at the present time. There was an article recently 
that one woman, uh, because she had a child, was going to send her off um, into, you know, to, to serve in the dangerous zone, and she chose not to and lost her position in the Army because of that. So we've almost gone full circle with women couldn't serve in the armed forces. Now that women do serve in the armed forces, they're being challenged to back to, to motherhood and losing their jobs because of it. Could you speak to that? Yes. Um, I confess I'm not enthusiastic about women in combat or in, um, and I'm not at all enthusiastic about mothers overseas, separated from their children. Um, I don't think we're in a position in which we need it. We're not in a position of a war of national liberation or resistance against the Nazis or whatever it is when, when, everybody, when everybody fights. Um, there was for a while a problem in terms that that one had to think about, if you thought about political futures for women, when it was, um, if you hadn't served in the military, it was unlikely that you could ever hope to be commander-in-chief. Well, Bill Clinton dispelled all of that. So it's perfectly clear that you don't have to serve in the military to, to reach the upper levels of political life. Um, so the, the advantages are the advantages of career, um, national service, the education that comes with it. Um, I'm perfectly happy to have women in non-combat roles. I'm perfectly happy to have women in forms of national service that pay well. Um, as I say, it's, I, I've seen a lot of this close up. I've read a lot of the Army documents, and I know that it isn't working very well. And the Army is under tremendous pressure to, to show that gender equality, as it's called, it's really sex, not gender in this instance, um, is something that they can do and will do. But they've had to change their physical standards so that women could meet them. Um, because women don't generally meet the same physical standards as men. Um, and we can do things men can't do. We withstand cold and heat much better than they do, but those aren't the tests for, you know, we, we, do, we just don't do push-ups. We don't carry 60 pounds as far as they do. So you end up with, with male infantry or men or soldiers having to carry packs for their female comrades. We're proving the wrong point. Professor Malcolm? Yes, you mentioned the role of parents and how that changed, which I thought was extremely interesting. Um, what do you see as the role of the larger community in supporting marriage, and do you think that that has changed over time? I do think it's changed over time. Um, and I, I think that's an excellent question. And the, the larger community has lost a lot of its commitment to marriage. And part of that is a product of the more radical forms of individualism. I know what I think is right, but I'm not about to tell anyone else what to do. 
and a culture in which divorce is very common, um, and therefore marriages come, marriages go, whatever, um, and it, it, the community doesn't seem to attribute the importance and respect to marriage that it used to, and um, large corporations assuredly don't. You know, when you have one member of the family living with two or three airplane tickets in a pocket and a cell phone always on, you know that family is not a top priority. Professor Kelly? Yeah. <clears throat> um, going back into the, um, the economic dimension, which uh, I would say for the, uh, somebody coming who was a, was a producer in what I call the Genovese lash position on these, these issues, I, I would kind of like to see more of it. I mean, one thing that clearly, um, not so much industrial capitalism, but post-industrial capitalism is produced is this um, period in life which simply didn't exist 50 years ago, right? This, this period in life when people are not in any family, right? When they're not in the family that they grew up in, they're not in the family they get married in. And that's largely a product, I think, of the intense educational expectations, uh, at least for middle class and upper middle class, that people not only spend four years in college, but they spend years in graduate school, and they go into enormously um, sort of demanding jobs that required them to work 80 hours a week so they couldn't, you know, date, they couldn't court if they wanted to. Um, and so I guess one question is, um, to what degree are these, some of the phenomena you're talking about, the alienation, even from the rhythms of family life, that makes it very hard for people to go back into marriage, a product of not capitalism as such, but of the kind of post-industrial capitalism we have, um, and is there any way to deal with it at that level? Not to deal with just at, at culture as such, but the kind of economic substructure that are producing some of the um, cultural changes you're talking about. Um, well, it's, you, that is the, the post-industrial capitalism, post-modern capitalism, global, whatever we call today's phenomenon, is what I've been talking about for the last few minutes in any case. It's not, I'm not what I was talking about in this lecture, it's what I'll talk about in the, in the next one. Um, and I do see it as deeply intrusive and um, essentially inimical, inimical to family life, that it, is, that it is absolutely interested in the individual as pawn and as early as possible. If you can make the five-year-old into a consumer, so much the better, right? It's um, that incredible Toyota ad or one of the car ads where you have a very wise male overvoice and you see a mother and child and the child is saying, Mama, I want, I want. And it's the kind of screaming you never want to hear in a supermarket and, and <laughs> nagging. And, um, finally, the mother in desperation gives in. She's clearly a professional upscale mother who isn't much used to shopping with her kid and he gets the toy he wants. And then this voice of wisdom and maturity, the over voice, they suddenly get the picture of this, this car says, children get what they want, why shouldn't you? <laughs> Which is, um, you know, if, if, if you look closely at at some of the ways in which products and companies themselves are marketed, it's all targeted on the individual 
and it, the, it is hostile to the family. And that is why I see a renewed commitment to marriage as a form of resistance. And I think it's something that requires tremendous courage. All right? But there are people who do it, who say, no, I won't. Whatever the cost, I don't have to have three Lexus SUVs in my garage. I don't have to have the next largest house, because the people who are most directly affected by these messages are the, the middle and upper elite, you know, the, the middle and upper middle classes. And for better or worse, we're the ones who set the cultural tone for the country. And it's not going to change by itself. There's no, there's no economic miracle that's going to change it. Um, the worst that could happen is that a majority of jobs would go overseas because of the comparative advantage in the price of labor in other countries, and we'd have rising unemployment in this country, and a grim political move, mood, and the possibility of ugly political movements of various kinds. And that's no answer. Well, we have uh, reached little tiny, Colleen. Yeah, go ahead, little tiny. <laughs> 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 Yeah. On, on Lady Catherine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think Austin summarizes uh, Lady Catherine's character when Lady Catherine criticizes Elizabeth Bennett's piano playing, and Lady Catherine says, because I would have been a great proficient had I ever learned. Next Monday, December 8th, 4.30, here, uh, Professor Cox Genovese will be giving uh, her third and final Charles Test seminar lecture uh, under the title Marriage on Trial. You're all welcome uh, to that lecture and hope you'll be able to attend. Uh, at that time, I'll also take pleasure in announcing next year's Charles E. Test uh, scholar who will succeed uh, Professor Cox Genovese in uh, that role. Uh, and before I ask you to join me in thanking her for this wonderful uh, presentation and question and answer session, uh, let me invite you to the reception that we'll be holding in her honor just outside the room. Thank you, Professor Bennett.